Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op this morning. You know, we always want to talk about the benefits of co-ops, how you can solve your community problems. If you have a community problem, a few people, a handful of you may want to get together and figure out how you can solve it and possibly make money in the same time. And that's what cooperatives have been doing for, I don't know, almost, I guess, since the beginning of time. If you take a look at Native Americans and Africans and tribes and everything they do, they did. They had to work cooperatively. And this morning... You know, we are going to talk to the executive director of KDC. Keystone Development Center. Keystone Development Center. Peggy, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. She drove down from Pennsylvania this morning to be with you. Thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome. It's a beautiful ride. Great. Until it gets to the city part, it gets a little tricky. Still still beautiful on a motorcycle, but okay. (laughs) Glad you could make it in. Thank you. Tell me, how did you get started in co-ops? How did, how did that world happen for you? Well, I was um, traveling in Costa Rica, and that was in the uh, 1990s. And I was visiting, well, actually, I should step back a little bit if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was exposed to the Quakers when I worked in Philadelphia for the American Friends Service Committee. And so when I volunteered down in Costa Rica, I got exposed to um, a group of Quakers who had left Alabama in the early 1950s. Uh, They were conscientious objectors to war. And after the Korean War, the Korean War. Yeah. After they served a year and one day in jail, when they came out, they decided to caravan down to Costa Rica because Costa Rica had just done away with their military. And so they were a peaceful country. And these families drove down in caravan style to Costa Rica. How can you drive to Costa Rica? Well, across land. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> they went through Mexico, through Mexico. They went through Central America. And when they came down to Costa Rica, they settled in Monteverde. Which, I, I have literally looked heard, at the map to see about riding down there, so I'm saying that jokingly because I, be, I really have looked at it. That would be a fun ride. It. It, will, it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Good motorcycle ride. I, there mm. have been people who have done it. Actually, my dad and his father and brothers drove down to Panama when he was a teenager. So it's funny that I ended up down there. But anyway, these uh, Quakers, they started... A dairy co-op, because they had been dairy farmers. They started a cheese co-op in Monteverde and also a coffee co-op. And I was working with some coffee farmers in in a section of Costa Rica. And I went and visited this, and I had never really heard about it. And it was, to me, astonishing, after working with the coffee farmers, to see that 
these these people who were being taken advantage of by the coffee companies, here was another example where they could be owners and operators and profiting from raising coffee. So it was beautiful to see, and uh, it really inspired me. Okay, so your father runs down to Panama when he was a teenager. That and was you a side note. The, yeah, but that sounds <laughs> like you, y'all were rich. Y'all come from a wealthy family. I or did something. not come from a wealthy family at all. No, um, my family, uh, especially on my mom's side, uh, they they lived in Camden. My uh, Camden, New Jersey. Camden, New Jersey. Okay. Their whole lives. Um, my grandfather, his mom died when he was a little boy, and he lived in um, an orphanage. They were kind of split up. And um, then neither my grandparents finished high school. I think my grandfather finished seventh grade and my grandmother finished ninth grade. And she worked in the five and dime making sandwiches. And my grandfather worked night shift at Campbell's Soup and in the shipyard. They really, they never they eked had. out a living. They were yeah. working, not working poor, but maybe, okay. Yeah, yeah. They were working poor. They never had a car. They never drove. They used the bus. Um, and so I got to, I went to school at Rutgers Camden. I worked, studied urban studies. I learned about opportunities there to help people. Actually, I worked in reading and writing, literacy, education when I was at Rutgers so I was really interested in helping emancipate people, helping empower people to take more control over their lives and their businesses and not be taken advantage of by companies. And when I worked for the American Friends Service Committee, I went along the border of Mexico for a while and I got to see the way people were living in the Maquiladoras. There was a lot of research being down there being done down there by the Quakers about the way the workers were being treated, they were being exposed to chemicals, and it was just horrible living conditions. All of these things inspired me to find a way to help people have more control over their ability to make a profit off their hard labor. Um, later, when I, I married a farmer, an 11th generation farmer from Lancaster County, and we started farming, I got inspired to help farmers form co-ops. And that okay. all of that came from the things that I had witnessed and the things that I had learned from, mostly from the American Friends Service Committee and the Quakers. So how did you get involved with the American Friends? And so what I, what I see right now, Peggy, is that you came out of poor, uh, not wealthy you didn't have anybody to give you a million dollars to start a business or bail you out of bankruptcy three times. So you you somehow got into college and you had this idea. But a lot of this, it sounds like somewhere the Quakers and the American Friends organization help you to get a bigger view of the world. Yeah, I, I traveled. Um, my parents were really involved with a lot of international um Hosting families, because I grew up in the Philadelphia area, in, in Camden. Collingswood, New Jersey is my town, but right outside of Camden, and that's where my family was. We were connected to things happening in the city. And we hosted families, international families, and I'm still connected with some of those 
people today, friends in Indonesia and Japan and Germany and Chile. So I, I got an opportunity to know people from all over the world. And the friends were doing work like that. And it really attracted me. So living in Costa Rica, exposing myself to the life, living in a small village. I lived there for about a year where there was no electricity, no running water. There's a bus out two days a week. Uh, I was there under a lot of earthquakes and they, they had nothing. They had no services whatsoever. Um, there were two tiny little stores. They didn't have much to eat. So we started raising food. I um, got some tools and started teaching them to raise vegetables and sell vegetables and raise chickens. And because they were basically just eating rice and beans three times, um, three times a day. And there was a lot of nutritional problems in that village. And um, it was just a really eye-opening experience, too. Um, I thought Camden was rough. No, the Mexican border, that was really rough. Mm -hmm. Costa Rica, they had it a little better there because they, they had these little houses. They had beautiful air and fresh water, but they really had no food. So that's how I got it into raising vegetables and produce. So when I came back to the States, I started farming. Okay, so here's what I recap in what your early life is. Relatively poor financially, modest means, and I have it growing up in Bluefield, West Virginia. I realized on the mountain that I grew up with, everybody in poverty had, uh, it did not discriminate. White, black, pink, green, old, young, it didn't make any difference. So you were living in that kind of life, but somewhere your parents gave you a wealth in terms of knowledge and inquiry of what's happening in the world by hosting other families, by your father traveling and then telling you about this. So you got this worldwide view through him and somehow you ended up with the American friends and in Puerto Rico and looking at the Mexican border and all of Costa that. Costa Rica. Costa Rica, right. Yeah. Well, see, I lived five years in Puerto Rico and so... I lived in San Diego a couple of years, and I would go down to Tijuana and down there a lot, and I saw how people lived in tin huts. I saw it in Haiti, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, Bangkok, Thailand, um, Pune, India, San Paulo, Brazil, Puerto Rico, like I said, and, and I traveled that whole island. And, and I would, when I would travel, I would go around and look at how people lived. I wanted to see how people lived more so. There was one guy I was traveling with, a British chap, and he wanted to look at the architecture. And somehow I was not interested. Today I am, but I'm interested in not only architecture, I'm mainly interested in how people are living and how they make a living and how people can come out of poverty. Dame Pauline Green, if you haven't met her, you would love her. She was the president of International Cooperative Alliance, and she said on the show, that co-ops help people come out of poverty with dignity. And that's one of the reasons I like co-ops. I didn't get into it because of that, which we'll talk about later. So I got that your parents gave you wealth. It was in terms of in, uh, inquiry and knowledge and wanting to know how to live life and live life better for yourself and other people. That kind of hit on? Yeah, and, and I was going to say compassion, but I think it's a little bit different than compassion because it's more like, seeing the capabilities that people have to be empowered within themselves and providing the scaffolding needed to help that happen. Scaffolding. 
scaffolding. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's to get them to come out of poverty with dignity. Yes, dignity. Okay, so you're in Costa Rica. You're with the Quakers. And what did you see down there? What were the kinds of things that you saw the Quakers doing? Well, they they have been there a long time now, and they're very integrated into that community. But they own the business. And when I saw the way the, the campesinos were living that I was living with in Grano de Oro, which is the section I was living in, they had no access to any anything. They raised the crop, and a big truck came and took it away. These people were turning it into a product, and they were selling it, and they were making the money. The farmers that I was working with were just raising the raw product and losing all value. What farmers were you working with that was losing value? The area that I was living in was not where the, the Quakers were. Okay. I went and visited and saw that example and was so inspired. So you got a chance to see co-ops working and non-co-ops and the difference. And we're going to come back exactly. and talk about that, but we're going to take our first break and we'll be back. And please don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. DC's News Talk, 1450 AM WOL at 95.9 FM. This power, that's why the uh, WL makes a great partner. You know, uh, National Crop Bank sponsors this program to give you information so you'll have power. Power only comes, though, okay? Power, like gasoline, it's power, but it's stored power. You don't get any power out of gasoline until you put some kind of energy to it, and then it explodes. And it can explode and move your car or do whatever you want it to do. Same thing with knowledge. There, It's stored power. We can give you the knowledge, and this is why uh, Peggy is here today to give you knowledge, and we're going to get into the kinds of things that they do in her organization. But you only get the power by using the information that you get. So a lot of power here, and we're going to get back talking to Peggy. We're going to go right back to Costa Rica. You're in Costa Rica. You are Young Chippy, did they? You're younger. <laughs> Costa Rica. And you're working on a farm where people are very poor and they're striking out. And then you go and you look at the, what the Quakers are doing and they're making money in the cooperative world. So what, what are the differences? What did you see there? Ownership. Ownership. Okay. Control, decision-making power, end product to sell to a customer rather than the commodity. Value-added product that was being produced and sold with their label, they were making the profit. They had taken the middleman out. Whereas the campesinos that I was working with on the other side of the country, they were raising a product, a big truck would come, they would take it away, and they would just get pennies on, on the dollar. And so it was fascinating to me to think that these people had the ability to potentially make a product and make money, but they were powerless in the system that they were caught up in. So these were the campesinos, 
And is that the name of the people or the name of the group? That's the group of people who who live out in the farmland. Okay. Yeah, they were farmers. They were squatters, actually. Um, they they had the a land. squatter's law in Costa Rica if land had been abandoned. If you live there for a certain number of years, you can actually own it. So this was a group of people who had left the city, moved out, taken over this land as squatters, hadn't really a lot of history with farming, and they were raising coffee. But I've talked to a number of people, whether they're from Latin America, Asia, Africa, the farm, and even here, if you're in a farm, you have you take on all of the risk if you're doing it by yourself. That's the risk of rain or heat or pest or having bad seed, anything. You take on all of this risk. And if you get a good crop, you may get paid pennies on the dollar because you don't have a way to market those. And the person that's marketing them makes all the money. So you, you're at the risk of the market. You're at the risk of everything if you're farming out there by yourself. And that's what you saw the camp, campesinos. Yeah, it's very difficult to make any kind of profit. But at the same time, they were happy to be living out in the countryside, to be working with their hands, to mm-hmm. be able to have a home. Mm-hmm. And so that seemed better than maybe working in a factory. Uh, better than being in the city. There's some pluses. Yeah. And the minus, though, is... You, they were you, entrepreneurs. You have all of this risk. And you don't get the profit. Somebody else gets the profit when there's profit. That's right. They were entrepreneurs. They were excited about possibilities. Right. And in order to farm, in order to put a seed in the ground, you have to have a lot of hope. You have to be able to take risk, and they were doing it. The Quakers on the other end, they've been doing this a long time. They were... They were a community. Yeah. They weren't individuals. Right. They were a community who had moved down together unified in such a way that they decided to form a business as a community and be owned by everybody in the community and put their assets into it together instead of competing against one another or instead of individually selling to a a big company, they became the owners. They invested. So they've got a community that makes decisions. They are the ones that make the decisions about the business but most of the time, for those successful co-ops that I've known and researched, they make communities on a long-term view of what's best for the community in a long-term, and then decision on what's best for the community, not necessarily what's best for an individual, but what's best for the community. That's yeah, what you, you saw? Have to, and, and that's probably some of the main values that you see in Quakers, this idea of the consensus decision-making process. The idea of conceding to what's best for the whole over what's best for me as an individual. And those values make it possible when you believe in community over yourself as an individual. When you believe in community, you can do more together. Similar to a marriage. If you you can accomplish more together married or with your family, if your children all work in a family business or multi-generations, you can do the same with a community, a larger community of business owners. And then there's economies of scale. No individual would be able to produce enough on their own, but if everybody pulled together their resources and their skills and their talents, then they could potentially have a viable business. Okay. 
All right. So you brought this marriage thing. If everybody work together, it works. If they don't. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Okay. And that's where things get difficult is okay. when people aren't putting it all in for the community. Yes. Well, in my marriage, I've, I've had that experience. <laughs> you work together, it works. And it works really well, wonderfully well. And when it doesn't, it doesn't. And this consensus decision-making, it's like everybody has to agree Consensus? Well, there's all kinds of rules. Um, one of the things Keystone Development Center does for our businesses is we help them develop their bylaws. And they're individualized per, I mean, there's some basic structure that needs to be provided. But different communities and different business models will have other kinds of processes or cultures of how they make decisions and what their leadership looks like and how many people are going to be involved in owning the business or being on the board. And so we help them through that kind of social decision-making process. Okay. Social decision-making process. I like that. So let's leave Costa Rica. You've left that and you brought company, you talked to Keystone Development where you are now. Where did you go from Costa Rica to Keystone? What's that? bridge in there what did you do so let's see <laughs> it's kind of been all over the place okay but um when I, I went to grad school at the university of arizona where i studied life skills education so i work in non-formal adult education and this is a piece of that helping i knew i wanted to help people and communities build business when i married my first marriage we came to um, Lancaster County and started farming. And I had this sense of community, and we started a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture Farm. And that was a new idea at the time. And it was in 1999 when we started, and we had grown a sense of community of those consumers who were purchasing from us. But the loyalty that they have towards our farm is different than us or other farmers have towards their farm. And I started to realize our real partners weren't our customers. Our real partners were the farmers in our community. Hmm. And if we could work together, we could potentially do better rather than competing against one another for a handful of customers, driving our own individual truck into the city while five other trucks are driving that same day carrying some stuff, let's ha let's get a truck together. Let's move our product together. Why should we raise 60 different crops? Perhaps we could raise 10 and every other person in the co-op would raise 10. So I started communicating with farmers, brought a group of farmers together. That was in 2005. I think there were 15 farmers met on our farm. And we um, actually reached out to Keystone Development Center, who helped us with this process of discussing what a co-op would look like. That was October 2005. And then by May 2006, this co-op was up and running. There was so much enthusiasm amongst these farmers. And I need to mention, we were the only non-Amish farmers in that group. Today, that co-op is called Lancaster Farm Fresh Co-op and has over 100, maybe 125 farmers. 
a thriving business, um, the profitability at that point, farmers were earning about 10 cents on the dollar by selling to the auctions. The, the price for the product increased because we were going directly to the customer and farmers started getting a dollar ahead for lettuce instead of 10 cents ahead for lettuce almost immediately. The profitability, the ability. Nine times, that's a 90%. Amazing. 10%, 10 times increase. 10 times 10, yeah. It brought so much more value to the farmers. We shared in the resources. We had our own marketing team, our own trucks, warehouse, and and suddenly we had somebody selling for us, picking up at our farm, delivering our products, and it made it possible for us to have a successful business by sh- working together. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And if everybody out there, if you've got an idea, you have a need, you can talk about how you can come together and solve that particular problem. We're going to be right back. We're going to take our second break, and we're going to come back and talk about some of the other things that KDC does. We'll be right back. National Co-op Bank, uh, you know, they've been around only since the 80s, and they provide financial services for co-ops and co-op members in the United States. Um, And, you know, they really work in low-income communities, and that's different from most banks. They do a wonderful, wonderful job at it, and we're so, so appreciative for the almost six years we've been on the air. This October will be six years, Peggy. They've been right with us, not only with the financial uh, helping us with the money, but really with us and helping us to figure out who we should be talking to and where we might go and even help buy some, some equipment so we could go to different locations and do live shows there. They've just been a wonderful, wonderful partner. And somebody from, oh, I keep forgetting this lady's name. She called Chuck Snyder and the group Angels for what they do for people in the United States and around the world. Okay. So what do you do, Angel? How did you get to KDC? You were you were working on a farm with your first husband. You got people together. Fifteen farmers started, came up to like a hundred and twenty farmer Lancaster farm fresh, and helped them to figure out how to go sell their cabbage from ten cent a, a head of cabbage to a whole dollar. That's wonderful. So they could become profitable. And I had a lady from Africa on the show. It was somebody from NCBA that talked about this lady from Africa that said. Before they joined the co-op, they had more months than they had money, that they would run out of money probably in the winter times. Right. Okay. Or before the spring, before they start planning again and getting. And after they joined the co-op, they had more money than month. So they think they could have money for food for the whole 12 months. And that was just a great way of seeing it sound like that's the same kind of thing. That's a nice way to explain it. Yeah. Yeah. Same kind of thing that may have happened with Lancaster Farm Fresh. Going from ten cents to a dollar, I can't get over that. So, how did you move then from being on the farm and getting KDC to help you to work for and be the executive director of KDC and help others? Yeah. So, I guess when they started, when Lancaster Farm Fresh started, we had the option: Did I want to continue to work for Lancaster Farm Fresh, or do I want to help grow co-ops? And I was so inspired by the possibility of growing co-ops that Lancaster Farm Fresh was up and running. We had a staff. 
we had a, a thriving business, I felt like I wanted to go and do more of this. And so I started working for Keystone Development Center for KDC. And that was in probably in 2006 or 2007. I've been there. Yeah, I've been there ever since. Um, for a while, I worked for Penn State Extension. And at, during that time, I was on the board of KDC. KDC is a nonprofit organization and run by a board of directors and um, a very tiny staff. And uh, very tiny, tiny meaning two people? Um, at the moment, um, we are three. Three. Okay. Yeah. Good. But ideally, 30%, five. 30% increase. <laughs> <laughs> ideally, our team should be five and maybe even more. There's so much work to do. There's no end to the demands on our services. It's growing. The, the interest in co-ops is growing. The model is expanding to new types of businesses kind of breaking the mold from the traditional co-ops to looking at new ways the cooperative model can be used. And our funding source, we're grateful for the USDA Rural Cooperative Development Grant that supports rural cooperative development, but we don't have the same resources to do the work in urban areas. And that's an area where we want to see KDC grow. We have recently converted to a 501c3. We were a c6, but now we really want to work hard on grant writing and get donations to support the work that we do. Because when we support a co-op, almost all of our work is pro bono. We do not charge the clients. We use other resources from grants and donations to support the development or the sustainability of co-ops. And there are some clients that we've worked with who have been around for a long time and maybe have a change in leadership or a new opportunity or are struggling in some way, and we can step in and assist them. So let's talk about the, the difference between urban and rural. So USDA helps you with the rural side, and now we're talking about urban. How much of your work is in rural and how much is in urban? Well, let me see. Um, we have a growing interest in the urban areas. So first of all, KDC has grown quite significantly since um, 2015 when we were probably serving about 10 clients and have moved to about 35 leads a year now. And we're about half and half at this point, urban inquiries versus rural inquiries. Um, and so it's an area where we're struggling to try to find a way to meet the need. However, we're not alone in this. We have a lot of great partners who are doing fantastic work in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, D.C., New York, all of these um, urban efforts to support cooperative development. And we see all of those efforts as partners of ours, and we do what we can to support those organizations and uh, work with those efforts. So I got, which I was getting ready to ask you next, so you got one half urban, one half rural, 
And you've just named Pennsylvania, Maryland, D.C., New York as some areas that you work in. Are there any other states and areas that you work? Um, New Jersey. New Jersey. Yeah. So if for somebody out there, if you're out there, you're in the D.C. area, and you want to look at starting a co-op to solve whatever the community need that there might be. I know in Ward 7, Ward 8, there's food deserts, and we need some food co-ops. If you want to, then you can look at the KDC to get some support, and they can start and look at their partners to try to help you get support. Who would they call, or how would they email you, or what would they do if they wanted to Well, we have a website. Website. That's an easy place to start, and that's www.kdc.coop. Although I hear it's not cool to say www anymore. So just go with kdc.coop. Keystone Development Corporation.coop, kdc.coop, kdc.coop, and you can get information. Is there a telephone number? Some yes. People that it not- is 717-792-2163. Okay, 717-792-2163. You get a lot of information if you go to kdc.coop. Okay, so if somebody out there, if you have an idea you want to look at and you have no money, you have little knowledge, you don't know what co-ops are all about, you're great. Just call or go online, kdc.coop, and start getting help and getting the training that you need. And they just said it's pro bono to you in that you do not have to pay anything. They're looking for to get grants and so forth to help them with this, this stuff. All right. So that's what what you the areas that you're looking at is five states. And you talked about getting grants, mainly from the federal government, from the Department of Agriculture, which has probably is the organization, the federal government division organization that knows most about co-ops because of the farming side of it. Um where else do you get money from? Well, we do charge clients for a portion. We have to have a match. Uh, and so existing co-ops sometimes have the ability to pay that. And other times we try to find community partners to support the grant. We always have partners on all of our projects. So we might work with Extension Service or we may work with organizations like AFL-CIO who helped with Montco. Um, there are other <clears throat> organizations like Catholic Charities for Human Development have supported the Monco project that we did uh, with the taxi drivers. So we try to find partners who will bring in some resources. Farm Aid uh, also supported some of our projects. Um, so it depends on the project. If project specific, you may find different monies out there, different support, and that's where the grant writing becoming a five hundred one c three. Right, and also bringing those partners to the table. It's not like we we kind of coordinate some services. So right now, I'm working with a a client who's really f- facing a crisis, and they've been in, in existence for a long time, and they're struggling hitting payroll. So we start bringing together some of the resources that we have. We work with an accountant. We work with a lawyer. We work with um, some of our community partners who who care about that project are bringing money to the table to help pay for the additional services. We're bringing in a marketing person to help train and work with their new employees because they had a changeover of staff, lost some relationships with some customers. So we could go in at that level and try and help 
Or we can go with a group of people in a community who are just beginning to think about an idea and sit and explore and talk with them through those beginning steps, helping them with leadership development, helping them with the incorporation process. So we always try to find those partners. For example, I worked with shellfish farmers in New Jersey. I knew nothing about shellfish. However, we found a great partner. In fact, I'm allergic to them. So okay, okay. <laughs> I you know you're allergic to shellfish. I got it. Uh, but we worked with Rutgers at University Cooperative Extension with a marine biologist, and he was a great partner. And it was a fabulous uh, team to be incorporating that business with university and with the Department of Agriculture in New Jersey. So it's definitely a team approach. Well, there's probably other places you could find monies and other partners. Um, I just sold a piece of property, and I have a few dollars. So if I wanted to put some money into your organization. We absolutely accept donations. Yes, but it's going to be small. It's probably $500, probably too small for you. I wouldn't want to it's embarrass you or small. anything. Nothing's too small. <laughs> and we also have a membership program now, which really it's, it's an opportunity for serving our cooperative community, bringing together an ecosystem of people within the Mid-Atlantic region who are invested in the cooperative business model. And some of the programming that we're doing for those new members, uh, since this is newly launched in January, and you did speak with Stephen McDowell a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. our membership director, uh, we're looking at bringing a youth education program back and an adult education. Uh, we're looking at a leadership academy for cooperative uh, business leaders so that it's not just us teaching people. It's bringing people together to learn from each other, to support one another and work together. So the fifth principle of co-ops is education, knowledge, training, information. And that's, that was perhaps the second reason I like co-ops. The first reason was it says that everybody, number one principle is, is open to everybody. And being African-American and growing up with racism and Jim Crow and all of that, having an organization who's by design, it doesn't make any difference what your gender, what your race, what how much money you got or don't got. Uh, it just, you know, it just doesn't make any difference. You can be a member of a co-op. So I like that. Are you a member of any co-ops? I live in a housing co-op. I bank with the NIH Federal Credit Union co-op. I'm in a federal a food co-op. I've been threatening to join REI and buy stuff, uh, recreational stuff. So, yes, I'm a member of three, and I'm looking for a couple others, and it might be KDC. We're going to take our next break, and I want to come back after the break and talk about some of the different projects. You, you said you have about 35 inquiries. What are some, some of the different projects that you've worked on in the past? And everybody out there, please stick around. We'll talk a little bit more after the break. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.9 FM.
Welcome back, everybody. Uh, you know, if you, which I want to do is make a donation to KDC, I really like the work, and we've talked about some of the kinds of things that they do. And so what you would do is just go to the webpage and hit kdc.coop. And when that comes up on the main page, if you look right under Keystone Development Center, you see a, a, a little green box that says Learn About Membership. You click on Learn About Membership, and then you scroll down, and you see where another green box is, become a donor. You could become a member or a donor. And we and like both, really. You like both? Either one or both. Okay. And then you fill out that page, and you go ahead and make your donation, submit it. Thank All you. All right. So go to kdc.coop, and I'm going to do that as soon as this program is over. So, so tell me, there are four different types of co-ops that, that, that I talk about. The first one is if, if it's owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker co-op. So I assume you work with them. Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. If it's owned and controlled by the consumer, it's called a consumer co-op, the people that buy the services or products. And we got credit unions and housing co-ops and uh, electric co-ops, telephone co-ops that's owned and controlled by the consumer and other types. And then if it's the farmers are in a lot in two, uh, mainly one is that they purchase in co-ops. And I already mentioned community purchasing alliance here in the D.C. area. But if they group together to buy their fertilizers, so, uh, soil, I don't know, seed, whatever they might need and or big equipment and everybody use it, then that's a purchasing co-op. And then they join together. And we've talked about this already in marketing co-op where they add value to their products, uh, organic valley, uh, ocean spray, Cabot Creamery, or different types of marketing co-ops so that the farmers can come together, bring their product, and then they sell it to the markets that they probably could not even reach. Okay, if it's a Pennsylvania farmer, he couldn't reach perhaps the California market, but Ocean Spray and Organic Valley and Cabot Creamery can. So it gives them more markets and they get a better price consistently. What about housing? Well, housing is a consumer 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 co-op where the people inside it, the tenants or the residents, if you will, they are the ones that own the house. So they use the consumer that uses that product. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I live in a housing co-op, and I, how I learned about housing co-ops is I manage how I learned about co-ops is I manage housing co-ops. So I didn't learn about them until I was fifty-ish. So you got it very early on, which is great. I wish I could have learned about them very quicker. So what are so some of the Worker co-op that you work with. So, um, Keystone Development Center. We've we're just finishing up our twentieth year of existence, which is really exciting. We've worked with over two hundred and twenty co-ops during that period of time, and um, we work with some on a lighter level education that maybe never really launch, but we do work with some very intensively from. The beginning of incorporation all the way through operation. and um, How many were that again? How two, many? 220. About 220. Over yeah. how many years? 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. So typical for us is to work intensively with 20 different product projects in a year. And that's the exact number that we work with in 2018, for example. One of those clients is a worker co-op, and that's Montco Union Taxi operating now as Anytime Taxi. And that was a group of taxi drivers who were really being taken advantage of by the system just by being um, 
just the way it's set up. If you don't own it, if you, you're just a worker, you're not going to ever make any profit. So, and you have no say so, and you have to do whatever the boss says do, or you lose their job because they'll pick up somebody else. And so you have no control, no say, no, you feel you may even bad pay about more yourself. money to work that night and not really get any, any rides or tips and yep. lose money. Yep. You got, you got, you are like that farmer we talked about. You have the risk of everything. And so we work with Monco Union Taxi and helped them incorporate a great group. In fact, all of their taxis are wheelchair accessible. Very exciting project. We had several really good partners in that project, and it's nice to see them up and operating. And those were um, those drivers are all immigrant drivers. I, I think all of them. I'm not sure if they all are. Mostly African Immigrants. Um, I like the word immigrant over alien. I always thought that word <laughs> alien was so... Okay, keep going. <laughs> Another project that I think you would be really interested in is a Friends Housing Cooperative, which started in Philadelphia in 1952. And um, they've been around a long time, but they're kind of losing some of their founding members and losing touch with their original principal. So we are trying to help them uh, looking at their documents and strengthening their organization. And they were originally founded to provide housing for racially integrated neighborhood and interracial couples. And that was pretty radical back in the 1950s. Very radical. We got to meet with one of the founding members when we went there last summer, a really lovely woman and uh, great, a great co-op. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm not familiar with them, but that's a consumer co-op, a housing co-op. The people there that live in the housing, they own it. They have the say so of it. And you can start an intentional co-op. And this was racial integration in 1952 because that wasn't happening most of in the U.S. That's right. Yep. Another really exciting project that we worked with a couple years ago was um, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Cooperative, which is a co-op of food banks. See, the food banks were getting a lot of donations, but they didn't have the ability to purchase fresh produce. You'd have to buy such big volumes and to manage something that's perishable was very, very difficult. And so they came together and formed a purchasing co-op so they can distribute the large volumes amongst multiple co-ops all up and down the Mid-Atlantic region. And uh, they have made a fantastic inroads into being able to bring fresh produce to their communities. Fabulous purchasing co-op. Well, here's another example. Uh, There's a need for the community. There's people that... Uh, again, food deserts, they can't get fresh produce, and then these organizations can't provide it, but they come together. They can buy in bulk. They can get it in larger quantities with better quality and a lower price. It just works. In yes. their first year, they they moved 1.5 million pounds of fresh produce to the food wow. banks in Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, Massachusetts, Maryland, New Hampshire, all up and down, down to Virginia. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a really fabulous group. And... Another exciting one was Early Bird Farmers Co-op, and that was a group of farmers who were selling competitively amongst their community to a company who was really pushing them on the profitability. They, were, they weren't making any money selling to them, and they wanted to negotiate 
better pricing, and they couldn't because they would lower it for one guy, and so in order for me to sell my eggs, I better lower my price or they're not going to take them. Right. And so they were pitting them against one another and making huge profits for themselves. So this group decided they would form a co-op and they would market their own eggs. It's still early in that group and they really could use a lot of customers. So maybe you'll see their eggs someday on the shelves. And that's Early Bird Farmers Co-op. Great group of guys. And is, this is then a marketing co-op. They're, they've got the eggs, and now they're trying to figure out how they can market those co-op, those eggs, to get more markets, better price, know what their price is, get it out. Kind of similar to the, the example that I gave in the beginning with the coffee growers. Yeah, coffee growers or milk with the Organic Valley people or Cabot Creamery. Is Actually, speaking of dairy, we did start a new co-op, a new dairy co-op in Lancaster just a few months ago. They're very, very beginning stages. They were breaking away from the, the dairy. If you've been following the dairy industry, it's it's been a disaster. These guys have a long-range picture. They are Amish. They did not want Sunday sales. They were being forced into selling on Sundays, which is really against their principles. They want to own a business that's going to carry through for generations. So here's what I've got. You gave us a worker co-op, you gave us a consumer co-op, a purchasing co-op, and a marketing co-op. You hit all four of them, and they're exciting businesses, so I really like what you're doing. What would you like to leave people with? What kind of message? When I think about what makes a co-op successful is the need, the need to work together the need for community, that you're stronger together. When it doesn't work is when people feel they're going to hold some back, when they're going to fight against, in fighting, fight against each other. And I've, I've seen both. And the only way I've seen it successful is when people believe that working together is going to be best best for them, best for their community, best for them as an individual. So working together is the key, not just separating, arguing, fussing, fighting, or making the decision what's best for you, becoming a predator where you try to get everything and not worry about anybody. They, they just don't succeed. They don't work. Peggy, thank you for driving down. Thank you so very much for being with us this day. I've really enjoyed this and would like to have you back. And I still want to get up there. I'm going to come up and visit you sometime. And maybe we'll do it live from someplace. Well, it's a great service that you're doing. I really appreciate it. And I hope to hear your archives. Okay. Just I know go they on, exist. Go on everything.coop and you can listen to the archive. Go to kdc.coop and donate or become a member. For everybody, please have a great week and live cooperatively. Thank you. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W.O. at 95.9.